Hi, I'm Peter Rao, and welcome back to Counterbalance. Mike Duran is traveling this week, so I'm flying solo, but I'm thrilled to be joined by another Hudson Institute colleague, Miles Yu. Miles is the director of Hudson's China Center. He's an alumnus of the Trump administration where he served in the policy planning department of the State Department policy planning staff when uh, Secretary Mike Pompeo was Secretary of State. Yet another colleague here at Hudson Institute. He is a uh, professor at um, Annapolis at the uh, Naval Academy and uh, has been spearheading our China work now for a couple of years. Miles, thanks so much for agreeing to join Counterbalance. Thank you, Peter, for having me. My pleasure. So uh, obviously events are raging in the Middle East. The war in Ukraine continues unabated. And uh, we thought it would be interesting this week to take a, a, a look at China and its interaction or engagement in both of those conflicts. Can you perhaps just sketch out the history perhaps of China's engagement in the Middle East and all the way up to the present where it stands today um, in the conflict between Israel and Hamas? Well, the Middle East is a very good uh, um, uh, place to start with. Because the current regime in China, the People's Republic of China, which was established by the Chinese Communists in 1949, almost is is synonymous, coincident with the the beginning of the of the Middle Eastern conflict uh, in the late 1940s. So there is obviously the regional re- reasons there. Uh, China being in the uh, Far East and the Middle East is. Uh, former um, European colonies, and now you have a new birth of a free and democratic Israel. But at all, there is also kind of overall Cold War conflict. So we have to understand China's interest in the Middle East from the Cold War perspective. That is that uh, China, after it's established in 1949, immediately uh, get into a hot war with the United Nations, uh, with the American-led UN troops in Korea. And after that, and there is a conflict in Vietnam, and there is a uh, a lot of uh, ongoing confrontations between the United States and China over Taiwan Strait and the Western Pacific in general. So from the perspective of American grand strategy, China has always been the focus of political instability, and, and that affects American's global strategy. So the issue then is to what extent that America should really focus on China as the source of instability for global peace. To what extent and we should invest in other security uh, issues such as uh, European security in NATO and also the Middle East, uh, as the Middle East began to explode in the late 1950s and particularly in the 60s. Uh, that's always the, a, an issue of a political statesmanship. Um, every time we say we want to beat, stop the Chinese communist expansion in Asia, we always had the strategic focus somewhere else. That is, let's get rid of the problem in, in Asia Pacific uh, first, uh, solve the China problem. And then we can focus on what we consider as a strategic focus in Europe against the Soviet uh, uh, threat and in the Middle East to solve this Middle East problem. So from the Chinese point of view, there is a great utility of this American thinking. That is, China wants to create as much trouble for the United States as possible in other places, particularly in the Middle East, as a strategic distraction. That's why China's investment in the 60s and 70s in the Middle East is enormous. For example, uh, the people, uh, Palestinian Liberation Organization, PLO, uh, have many of its uh, terrorists trained in China. 
the notorious Abu Nidal was trained in China. So uh, that's why you have this kind of Chinese involvement. This is all according to Mao's theory. Uh, there is a Cold War, and then China can play a very significant role uh, in the space between the Soviet Union and the United States. So China looked for the third world country to export Chinese style of revolution. So Middle East has always been very, very important for China's strategic thinking as a major strategic destruction to America's grand strategy. As it worked in the Middle East, did uh, China have a preferred partner? Or does it today? I, I think a lot of us have uh, have watched uh, China's role grow in the Middle East that obviously brokered, perhaps it's too strong of a role, but nonetheless played a role in the normalization between Riyadh and Tehran. Is there, a, is there a Chinese kind of strategic impulse? Is there a preferred partner? How does it, how does it work through the region? China had a great difficulty in finding a reliable, a sustainable partner in the Middle East. That's because both the Soviet Union and the United States dominated the alliance system in that area. So there's a few countries that really treated China as one country of significance. So China tried to penetrate it into the Islamic world, but China could not find anybody uh, that is simultaneously socialist, uh, uh, communist, as well as Islamic. The only country China did find in the 1670s was Albania. Albania was China's strongest ally uh, in that region, but Albania geographically is not really in the Middle East, is uh, in Europe, is in the Balkans. So, uh, but China invested heavily in Albania. So Albania, of course, was ruled by uh, by the communist uh, regime, but it's a predominantly Muslim. So uh, throughout the Cold War, uh, China tried to train the extremist, the terrorist, but really didn't have a sovereign investment in any of the major countries because they're dominated by the Soviet Union and the United States. And today? Today is different. Today is different because of uh, many circumstances. In the 80s and 90s, China regarded the Middle East as predominantly a sphere of influence of the United States, of the West. So uh, we have many wars there. We guarantee Americans strategic uh, uh, energy supply. We make the world more and more democratic, and we support Israel. So China for a long time sort of gave up, in a way, uh, uh, on the Middle East uh, because uh, uh, they knew they could not match Americans' influence. That's one of the impetuses of the uh, Belt and Road Initiative. Initiative was to go around where Americans have stronger influence uh, and then go to area where America's weakest, like Central Asia and uh, the Indian Ocean and Africa. So that's the initial impetus there. But now, since 1990s, particularly since uh, early 1920s, uh, 2020s, and especially, with the Trump administration, the United States has made a strategic shift that we try to uh, intellectually and strategically uh, reorient our strategic focus away from Europe, away from the Middle East, and to focus on China in the Indo-Pacific. So that's why China say, ah, US is, uh, has the empty has the opportunities. That's why China is terribly interested into the Middle East because of our uh, uh, withdrawal from that area. And China had developed a, uh, China's number one country in there was Iran. China really tried to establish a strong strategic partnership with Iran. Because it's an opponent of the United States or are there other rationales for why it chose to take Partly Iran? because of that, partly because of that, but also uh, because of Iran 
uh, could supply China with uh, cheap oil. And Iran has a lot of oil reserve, China eyes that. So the question is how to approach the Iranian regime and become a partnership without suffering from international sanctions. And that's basically China is always looking for opportunity. The opportunity came during the Obama administration with the JOCP, uh, JCPOA. JCPOA. Uh, so when Iranian regime was sort of a, a looked in a more benign light, China moved in and they're ready to sign that uh, JCPOA, uh, you had to sign a China-Iran comprehensive strategic partnership deal. But that plan was upended by the advent of the Trump administration. So, and that's why China waited for four years until uh, the current Biden administration came in. Weeks after Biden administration started, China went to Iran, signed this Iranian-Chinese comprehensive strategic partnership through which China was to invest $400 billion in a 25-year uh, term. And that will basically give China opportunity, opportunity to dominate uh, Iranian uh, infrastructure, particularly the banking and telecommunication and even education. So um, in return, Iranian is guaranteed to provide China with cheap oil. And that's basically the win-win for China. And how are those uh, how are those investments, those FDIs proceeding to date? I think at the time of the announcement, there was worry, to be sure, but also skepticism by some that the money would actually materialize. A 25-year span is a long period of time, we should note. So it could also materialize at a later date. But to date, um, is it fair to say it's been more of a mirage or is it real? Well, it's a yes and no. China's approaches always give you a big promise. And $400 billion is a magic number because China, uh, years before that, uh, did the same deal with Vladimir Putin, and gas uh, deal, $400 billion. Uh, that did not materialize. Uh, that's the Chinese pattern. They promise a big time, but then they try to sort of uh, prolong the engagement so that you will always be in, in the Chinese political orbit and yet you're not particularly, you're not really into the, the Chinese uh, orbit, but you're just around it. China also tried to be very opportunistic and in China says strategic. That is, they try to play a major role in the Middle East. They try to sort of bring the entire Middle East under Chinese influence. So the way to do it is that they don't want the Islamic countries in the Middle East to keep fighting each other. So right after China, uh, sign a deal with the Iranians uh, in the early months of 2021, I believe. And China went to uh, Riyadh and reached the same deal, tried to get some deal with Saudi Arabia. But what China did not expect was that this enraged uh, the Iranian regime because at the time, <laughs> Saudi Arabia and Iran didn't get along. So China was totally surprised by this. And Iranians play hardball uh, with China and China rushed back to Tehran. And so that's the reason why China tried to put Saudi Arabia and Iranians together and to reach a, a, some kind of a rapprochement. But in my view, that rapprochement was kind of a superficial and they really didn't solve the major problem, which is religious, cultural, and strategic as well. So the uh, you spelled out a bit about the Iranian-Chinese relationship. What's the Saudi uh, Chinese relationship look like? There's been a lot of movement on that in recent years, at least high-profile high uh, visits and, uh, and other aspirational announcements. Can you talk about those a bit? Saudi plays a very important role in the Middle Eastern politics uh, to a certain degree, obviously, global politics because of uh, 
is Saudi Arabia has a lot of oil, has a lot of influence, and they're also a leading country in the uh, Sunni world, right? So for years, years, United States tried to keep Saudi Arabia on our side while keep a very delicate balance about you know um, values versus uh, strategic interest. So that works out very well because Saudi is a key move in this Abraham, Abraham um, Accords. Uh, that is, uh, we try to sort of put Israel and Saudi in a more peaceful terms. And that is a very major accomplishment by the Trump administration as well as the Biden administration. And that's why Iranians didn't want to see that. And this is one of the major reasons, in my view, of the current Hamas attack. Right, but what are the Chinese views of of this? How do the Chinese factor in? Is their courtship tied to trying to bust up a burgeoning rapprochement between Israel and Saudi? Is that is that a the correct reason? China did not want to see that, but then that is a different issue. China saw okay. a great opportunity in Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia, when. Saudi Arabia and the United States uh, went on the bad terms at the uh, during the Biden administration. So we gave China the opportunity to exploit the situation. This is stupidity on our side. Uh, it is our ineptitude in dealing with the Saudi-U.S. relationship that gives China the opportunity to, to exploit. Or even not the Gulf, the Emirates as well. I would Absolutely. Think. The Gulf states, now China, uh, the, com the, the stake is very high because China is trying to present a different alternative to the American model, right? So China is going to present a different model of governance in that part of the world, and which uh, on surface looks very appealing to these countries um, because uh, we don't lecture them on LGBT, we don't lecture them on women's rights, all the time, and those countries do not really like to be lectured by that. I mean, those issues are very important for, for democracy, yes, but you have to really balance national interest, diplomacy, uh, and uh, uh, and also the correct and the most effective approach to solving the problems that divide those, those two worlds. All right, well, let's go now directly to the to the conflict that's the, the flame of which is burning the, the, you know, the brightest or the worst, and that's specifically the Palestinian Hamas versus Israel dynamic unfolding. What is the uh, the, the state of Sino-Israeli relations? Uh, this was a big point of uh, debate, as you remember, over the last several years with the port of Haifa, et cetera. And what do the Chinese have, if any, ties with the, uh, you mentioned already, the Abu Nidal organization, Abu Nidal himself, with, uh, with Hamas as it's constituted today? The Chinese-Israeli relationship on surface is very cordial. There is any sort of solid foundation upon which to develop a deep relationship. China eyes Israel for its technology. China eyes Israel for its access to the Western top-notch uh, weapon system. And China eyes Israel uh, for its geographic location in that part of the world. So Israelis obviously uh, would like to have a cordial relationship with China because China is, is a country that can play a very important role. And also, um, China is very intoxicated in terms of market access, in terms of potential economic trade. So Israelis and Chinese basically uh, relationship more, more, more or less rela uh, remain on a transactional level, which is a deepening and getting uh, constant progress. On the other hand, China's heart and mind are with 
the adversaries of Israel. So uh, in this current uh, confrontation, Chinese government has refused repeatedly to condemn Hamas for its atrocities on the Israelis. China has never identified Hamas as a culprit for the escalation and ultimate ex explosion of the current prices. And China also is providing enormous political coverage for the Hamas uh, militants in the sense that China failed to condemn Hamas's actions, but when the Israelis is staging a counter-offensive against Hamas, China immediately leading the crowd, leading the international community for a ceasefire. And that is basically to deny Israel's right to self-defense. Yeah, and Israelis have voiced some disappointment with the Chinese on account of this. Is this is this to be understood as, as an origin story, the Chinese Communist Party fighting on behalf of the oppressed third world uh, type of ideology? Or how do we explain their support for that's barbarism? That's a propaganda line. But another, another line is uh, China understands very well Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. Israel also is a staunch ally of the West. Mm -hmm. That is the ideological underpinning of China's ultimate hostility toward Israel. It never surfaced uh, obviously, but it's always there. So China really, really does not want Israel to provide an alternative to the countries that China wants to lead, right? You said about the disappointment by, of Israeli officials toward China. That's an understatement. China is fanning anti-Semitic rhetoric inside, inside China's totally controlled information environment. The amount of uh, anti-Semitic sentiment inside China is astonishing. Mm -hmm. So, um, and it's a, a, a couple of weeks ago, right after the outbreak of the, of the Hamas uh, atrocities on Israel, a relative of an Israeli diplomat was stabbed in downtown Beijing in the broad daylight. Uh, Chinese government basically took a very sort of blasé approach. It didn't really say much about this. Um, there are a lot of anti-Semitic and anti-Israel rhetoric inside China. And if you now in China today, if you're openly pro-Israel, you run personal risk of being busted by the police state. Let's pivot to Europe. Before we do, let's talk about Miles Yu, the man. You were born in China. Um, where were you born? How, how do you make your way from your birth in China to the Hudson Institute podcast studio? What's the story of Miles Yu for our listeners who might not know it? Uh, my story is pretty prosaic and because um, there are millions, hundreds of millions of uh, my generation who, who went through probably the same thing. I consider myself extraordinarily lucky. I was born in a little village in the Anhui province. Uh, soon after I was born, I think two weeks after I was born, my parents took me to a faraway province in western China, southwestern part of China in Sichuan province. So I grew up there. Um, I have very little flimsy connection with uh, uh, the birthplace, uh, my birthplace. So I grew up in the southwestern part of China and in the 1980s, um, I came to the United States during the Reagan years. Um, so I consider that, that the very, very... How did that come about? You're coming to the U.S.? I came to the U.S. mostly as an exchange student. It's not government sent. It's just two universities where I was enrolled in China, northern China, and uh, reached a deal 
with a, a college in Pennsylvania called Swarthmore College. And so um, all experiences covered for me, and then Swarthmore will send somebody to, to, to my university in China, all experiences covered. So there's a very little sort of a financial support uh, by either side, uh, government-wise. So I came over here, and after I graduated uh, from, from Swarthmore, and then I went to um, a wonderful place on the west coast of the uh, United States called the University of California at Berkeley. That's where I gained a new birth of freedom. It's an amazing place. I really miss that place tremendously. And then I spent uh, wonderful years, seven wonderful years there, getting my PhD um, in uh, military and diplomatic history. And then um, 1994, the U.S. Navy thought um, my dissertation was very interesting, so they hired me. And I've been a professor at the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, ever since. That was a long time ago. So, And, and uh, given your deep um, knowledge and, uh, and even ties to China, uh, you, have a, you have a podcast here at Hudson called The China Insider. Maybe just give us a brief advertisement commercial on that before we continue. Let me just preface a little bit of your question. That is, uh, I spend a wonderful time at the State Department during the Trump administration as uh, Secretary Pompeo's uh, China policy advisor in the Office of Policy Planning. That was both extraordinarily rewarding as well as educational. I learned how the government works. I know how the bureaucracy works. I know how American foreign policy was formulated. But also I learned about myself because um, um, I was one of the very few senior officials in the China policy circle that really grew up in China, knows the language and knows the the nomenclature of the uh, political system there. And I think I can provide something very unique. Uh, our China policy uh, circle, I think they're very smart, but they know more about America than they know about China. And I think you know, China's insider here uh, at Hudson uh, gives me an opportunity to look at the US-China relationship, to look at the, all the interactions that involve China from inside out rather than outside in. That's why we call it China Insider. That is, we tend to focus on the domestic mechanisms inside China, how that really determines China's foreign and domestic policies that affect everybody else. Uh, unlike most people in the think tank world, where we examine ourselves to death, and so they focus on how hawkish, uh, how dovish Americans' attitude and our tone should be toward China, as if we change ourselves, our tone, our policy, and the, the bilateral relationship will change. That has never happened. So that's why we gave uh, China, the Chinese Communist Party in particular, predominant agency in deciding the nature and direction uh, of the bilateral relationship. And this comes out how often? The China Insider broadcast comes uh, uh, every week, and then normally we roll out on, on Thursday, uh, Tuesday morning. Tuesday All right. Morning. Well, check it out, um, um, the Hudson China Insider. Let's go to Europe. Um, and as my opening question, a very unfair one, but I'm going to ask it anyways. What do you think the Chinese knew about the Russian intention to invade Ukraine, if anything? One week before the war in Ukraine took place, Vladimir Putin was in China. Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping announced the relationship between China and Russia is unlimited. Sky is the limit, unlimited. That shows to me that definitely that China would know Russia's intention. And far more importantly, this actually 
should never be a surprise to anybody because Russia's justification for the war against Ukraine is based upon the, exactly the Chinese justification for aggression against its neighbors, particularly Taiwan. That is, very important justification uh, of invasion of Ukraine is that Russia denies Ukrainian sovereignty and independence. It denies that Ukrainians themselves deserve the right to be independent, to be sovereign. Because Russia says, precisely because Ukraine share the same ethnic and linguistic heritage with Russia, therefore, Ukrainians should be part of Russia. That's exactly what China has been saying about Taiwan, who share the same ethnic and linguistic heritage with China, and therefore, Taiwan should be part of it. So if logic will prevail, United States should still be part of the uh, of the uh, of the UK uh, because we share the same ethnic but, language. But we language. don't know anything about the specifics of that meeting, and you don't have it. I mean, <coughs> feel free to speculate if you want. It's a uh, I cannot. Uh, I cannot say in um, in this forum uh, about the specifics uh, per se. But I think we we uh, it's established. We we know China's knowledge of that, and we know Russia's intention. Okay. What do you think is the uh, scope and nature of the uh, relationship between Russia and China. Do you think it is an alliance? Do you think it's uh, an alignment? Do you think they coordinate grand strategies, or 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 how would you how would you tell us to think about the relationship between those two? Is it a personalized relationship between the two leaders at the top that busts up when one of them leaves power? What's the right way to read this? So I don't think China and Russia is actually. Um um, not alliance, uh, but I do think that China and Russia share some common interest. That predominantly the common interest is Russia and China series uh, anti-West. Russia prefaced everything that it's doing in Europe as uh, is a violent fight against the the morally decline uh, uh, decadent West. So you can see uh, Vladimir Putin's uh, logic there. China obviously is anti-West because China believes the West is against autocracy, against Chinese style of, of governance. Um, it has made very clear that the United States' goal is to, to contain China's rise as a socialist country. So that's why they share that. Beyond that, there is also a lot of conflicting objectives. Russia and China share something very different geopolitically because uh, there was a clash of egos on the personal side. Vladimir Putin always places itself as number two in the world. So does China, right? So China wants to, that's why China really wants to have a bilateral summit with the, the leaders of the President of the United States because that would give the world an impression that somehow, pretty much like you know, uh, President Biden and the General Secretary Xi Jinping would decide uh, the, yeah. the future of the world. So Russia is not very happy about it. China, but Russia is really dependent on China for some critical supplies. One thing we have to keep in mind is that Russia's economy is less than one-tenth of China's. China's economic behemoth. So China really had this kind of a, a really critical link in sustaining the Russia regime which is under severe Western sanction for its uh, Crimea infection and for its uh, war in Ukraine. So China could play a very important role. Uh, that's why these two have a different, uh, different uh, uh, agenda. Now, there's one other thing I might want to say uh, here, which I think is very critical. 
original politics in Asia Pacific, Russia and China seem to be together. They have joined uh, um, bomber patrol in near the uh, Sea of Japan. But the, deep inside, these two countries have a very different uh, uh, perspectives. Russia is friendly with China, no question about that. But Russia also is simultaneously friendly with all the rivals, adversaries of China in the region, particularly Vietnam and India. Russia is also very friendly with ASEAN countries. Vladimir Putin actually held a Russia-ASEAN summit in Sochi, Russia, a few years ago, in which uh, all the leaders from ASEAN went over there and then they issued a joint statement, which is does, pretty amazing. Yeah. Does Russia have to worry at all about its uh, depleted population border in eastern Russia uh, along the northern Chinese border where the population imbalance is something like 40 to 1 demographically, or are these all offhand statements that one sees put out by various analysts? Eastern Russia, we will collectively know as Siberia, uh, is always facing the uh, demographic population. That's where people try to avoid to go there. In the Soviet era, you know, you don't want to be exiled in Siberia. Nowadays, in the, uh, the Russia Far East is grossly underdeveloped. And uh, that's one of the uh, actual strategic difference between Putin and China and Xi Jinping. That is, Russia very much wants to have Chinese capital investment in developing, industrializing the Russia Far East. Uh, China is playing hard to get and not really that uh, interested in that area. Uh, because it's not China's strategic uh, focus. This is why every time Russia and go uh, and China come together to talk about it, uh, the, the, Russia's agenda is always how China can help develop the Russian Far East, and China is always talking about something else, you know, uh, somewhere else with Russia. Uh, Russia right now is trying to diversify its source of support for its development plan in Far East. Russia tried to approach Japan. Russia is trying to approach many other countries, uh, ASEAN countries, for example. But it's very difficult because Japan is in a totally different <laughs> orbit. Um, when Russia invaded uh, uh, Crimea and uh, the prospect of uh, Russia, Japan, rapprochement, and using Japanese technology and investment in, in developing uh, uh, Siberia completely dashed because uh, Japan joined Western sanction uh, against Russia. And uh, by the way, I think Vladimir Putin made a vital mistake here. It's a strategic mistake. It's one of the blunders that I think you know see. That is, Vladimir Putin and the Japanese politicians came closest since the end of World War II to sign a peace treaty. Vladimir Putin himself finds himself as some kind of Japan expert. He's a judo master. He likes Japanese culture. He's just deeply involved, deeply sort of, uh, uh, he's Japan file, in other words. But then he basically alienated Japan and that hope is gone. And then I think that's a very, very bad uh, uh, lesson for, for Russians to learn. Let me take you for a closing bit to the war itself. Uh, can you describe briefly, what are the planks of China's Ukraine-Russia strategy. How does it look at the war? Where are the various balls it's trying to keep up in the air at the same time? I'll, I'll just I'll just pause it at the outset. The, the I think conventional hypothesis is that the Chinese, having established the Snow Limits partnership with the Russians, have developed a preferential relationship with Russia on the international stage that everyone recognizes. And so to drop then would be problematic for it as it tries to build up other 
alliances and partnerships around the world. On the other hand, its economy is the Chinese economy that is is weakening. It requires still Western inputs to grow. And the West has been clear if it crosses certain red lines on the Russia-Ukraine war by supplying the Russians with certain military kit, then it could face uh, economic costs. So it's tried to, in a way, straddle those two positions. But having hopefully not led the witness, give us your take on this. China's last major war took place in 1979 against Vietnam because uh, Vietnamese communists crushed China's puppet in Cambodia, the Khmer Rouge regime. So China decided to punish, punish Vietnam. The war taught China a big lesson, it shocked the Chinese high command. That is, the Vietnamese not only is a hard, battle-hardened military force, very formidable, but Vietnamese predominantly use the Soviet weapon system to beat the Chinese, caused China a lot of casualties. China, since then, was on the binge of modernizing its weapon system. So with the collapse of the Soviet Union, China saw a great opportunity to modernize, to leapfrog its military technology from Russia, post-Soviet Russia. So China initially, after 1991-92, China signed a lot of big deals with the with Russia uh, to buy many of the big ticket items, particularly uh, submarines and also uh, uh, next generation fighter jets, uh, Sukhoi 27, for example. But Russia also needed money from China. So it looks like the, the deal made in heaven. However, China very quickly discovered Russia's prices for those big ticket items were too much. They could get much cheaper at a fraction of the Russian uh, price tag from the Ukrainians because Ukrainians inherited enormous cash of Russian design, Russian manufactured weapons, short of nuclear. So China then quickly ditched Russia as a primary weapon supplier and went to Ukrainians. This has been going on for 25 years. So every single major item in Chinese People's Revolution Army's weapons depot, warehouse, inventory right now, has a Ukrainian fingerprint in there. From its first aircraft carrier, China bought you know, the old Soviet-designed Ukrainian carrier Variak for $20 million, to its uh, heavy bomber engines from likes of Antonov, the Ukrainian gave them, as well as uh, its largest air-cushioned amphibious landing craft, the European bison. China get all of them from Ukrainians. Ukrainians charge them very little. So China had this kind of incredible bonanza getting weapons, most advanced weapons Russia designed could have give to, to the Chinese. So that's why China's heavy bombers right now, the 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 uh, the H6 heavy bombers, all marked with, with Ukrainian engines. There are also several thousand, I think last, last time I counted, about 2,500 Ukrainian weapons experts trained by Russia and working in China. So this is tremendous. So China has an enormous stake with Russia. So Ukrainian government has been very cozy and promiscuous with the Chinese regime for years and years until obviously recently like Zelensky changed that, stopped that trend. However, it's a little bit too late. When the war happened in Ukraine, China is put into a strategic dilemma. 
as you nicely put that, Russia is so important globally. Both or uh, Russia and China both were this, uh, permanent members of the Security Council. There were two countries of enormous consequences. So China could not easily ditch Russia for strategic reasons. But China also could not ditch Ukraine easily because of the long-term investment. So China basically is try the best way is to try to be opportunistic. Okay. They try to have both ways. And it's very dangerous for current Ukrainian government to harbor this naive hope that China somehow could play a constructive role in the post-war Ukrainian reconstruction. And also hope China would broker some kind of a peace. Yeah, I think I think the I think the West will have some objections given the amount of resources we've plowed into Ukraine to have the Chinese take the spoils of a, of a post-war Ukraine. But um uh, let me ask you this. If that conventional hypothesis I laid it out, which you just endorsed, is true, clearly there is a dynamic calculation. It's not a static one that's made at one point in time and then just exists in perpetuity, where the Chinese continually reevaluate based on presumably events on the battlefield and the state of you know the Russian system and, um, and Putin's position in power, as well as Western threats or lack thereof, depending upon how the West acts in the war. There has to be a dynamic calculation on whether or not that that straddle is working and whether or not it needs to be adjusted. Do you see any circumstances, uh, just really really briefly in closing, any circumstances under which the Chinese come into the war in a big way? I don't see that. That's one reason Vladimir Putin didn't go to China asking for military since they went, he went to North Korea because China was sufficiently warm by the West. Uh, so I don't see that. However, China can definitely uh, prolong the war by its uh, ambiguous uh, support for both, right? So China has uh, been sort of, you know, giving the Ukrainians the Mona Lisa smile, smile. You never know what exactly means, but it's also very attractive. By the way, domestically, China's domestic policy has decidedly on the Russian side. If you were to say, if you're living in China today, if you say you're pro-Ukrainian cause, you'll be in trouble because the pro prevailing sentiment fanned by the Chinese Communist propaganda machine is pro-Russia. Internationally, China sort of you know, tried to be a peacemaker, which is nonsense. If you look at the 12 points peace plan proposed by China, none of it will work. So even a, even a collapse in the Russian lines wouldn't lead the Chinese to rethink their posture and your thinking? Well, then China could, uh, could uh, exploit the situation and say, you know what? Ukrainians, I support you. Look at the past history. We're, we're buddy buddy. So China is trying to get both ways. The problem is China does not stand for moral principles on international uh, issues. China said, oh, I might just gain um, immediate uh, uh, advantage of that. But in the long run, that's why China is hard to, for me to imagine China to be a global leader because it doesn't take a moral stand on vital issues such as a war and peace. Mm. All right. Well, with that, Miles Yu, thanks so much for uh, imparting your wisdom on us here on Counterbalance. Thank you, Peter, for having me. Thanks for listening to this edition of Counterbalance. We're back in action. Please like and subscribe if you enjoyed today's conversation. And we will see you soon at a podcast near you. Bye-bye. Thank you.